Hello and welcome to CMO Combo, the podcast from CMO Alliance, where we talk the talk with the marketing leaders who are walking the walk. This week, we're looking at one of the biggest challenges facing many CMOs and marketing leaders. How do you make long-term plans in a world where your tenure in a job relies on making an impact as fast as possible? Our guest, Ariadna Navarro, Chief Growth Officer at BSA Partners, has a tried and tested approach for tackling that CMO catch-22 of balancing immediate results with planning for long-term goals. And she joins the show to share her advice. Hi, Ari. Welcome to CMO Convo. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat. Thank you for joining us, Ari, because it's, yeah, it is an exciting conversation we're having because it's really getting to the root of what I think are a lot of the problems that CMOs are facing at at the moment. And that is being able to actually do the long-term plans and long-term projects that are part of their remit. And yet they're not given enough time to do it. So it's trying to find that that balance between that short-term growth and those long-term plans. So really, really excited to get your insights on that, Ari. But before we do dig into that really, really critical com- um, conversation, can you tell us a bit about yourselves and why why this topic in particular was one that you wanted to talk about today? Yeah, I won't bore you with every detail of my life, but um, I'm Venezuelan and I live in New York. So I came here uh, what now seems like a hundred years ago. I worked at Leo Burnett in, in Venezuela and I was here on holiday and a friend of mine said, oh, you should be my headhunter. And I literally asked, what's a headhunter in my country? No, I'm joking. Um, I love Venezuela. It's, you know, it's it's in my heart. But I uh, got a job at Wonderman. So I moved to sort of the digital and the direct side, which really taught me to use data to make decisions or to bring that into the creative thinking. And then from there, I went into a dot-com. And then I've been in consulting the 98% of the rest of my career mostly in innovation. So I really think about what's going to happen five years out and then what are sort of the steps you need to make within an organization to actually either grow or innovate or introducing your innovation pipeline. What are the things you need to kill? How do you transform and how do you change? So that really has served me well when you think of brand in thinking of brand more from the business side or not more, but as you know, as a business asset in addition to brand as sort of the external um side of 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 an organization so that's why i'm really fascinated when we talk about not just cmos but about change and long-term growth because we look at it in in isolation as all these pieces of the puzzle as opposed to sort of one challenge definitely definitely um so ari let's sort of lay down a bit of foundation shall we for this conversation so everyone if who's listening to this has probably seen the stats about the short tenure that cmos have like um, I've seen stuff as low as like 18 months or something insane. Yeah. Like it's crazy. And yet a lot of the projects, a lot of the things that CMOs are responsible for are long-term and they take longer than that amount of time to really show the payoff. Like if you think about stuff like brand building, so why aren't CMOs being given the time to actually see the fruits of the labors? Like why aren't they given the, the space to actually run these long-term projects to the best of their ability? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. So I think I think we may be asking the wrong question. And okay. I say that with total respect. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a problem of why aren't CMOs given uh, less or, or the time they need, and rather how do organizations see brand? Mm-hmm. And 
when you ask big legacy companies, you know, startups are different. Um, they have different brand problems. But when you look at big organizations, they saw brand as advertising, as comms, you know, as the front of the house, right? It's like, oh, that's the fluff. I mean, the amount of times I've heard senior people, you know, from, from C-suite people in big, you know, $7 billion organizations go to the, well, that's the fluff. You know, so when you think that brand is the fluff, then you see the CMO as a cost center. You know, you're not seeing it as a change agent or you're not seeing it as a growth engine or you're not seeing it as a business transformation agent. You're seeing it as the person that manages your advertising, your communications, gets your message out. B2B or B2C, it's irrelevant. It's sort of that, you know, sort of that mentality. Now that's evolved, of course, over time. And you see now this figure of the CMO evolving into chief growth. You know, we work with AT&T a ton. Their new CMO is chief marketing and growth officer. Now, when you have that title in front of you, and I know because that's what I do for a living, um, you now have to think about how do you grow the, how do you grow the organization beyond advertising, you know, beyond awareness, beyond consideration, because you're now responsible for a PL or you have KPIs that are hard KPIs that are not just brand. So it's sort of this, this entire cycle of it has to change with how you see brand and the role of brand. And we say, you know, brand is a business asset. So if brand is the business asset, all of that is is the strategic framework to make decisions. So if you look at brand like that as the best articulation of your business strategy, then that's just a framework. It's just like, great, if we stand for this and we offer this, and this is how we go to market, then how does that influence product, services, innovation, employee engagement and ex employee experience? Yes, of course, comms and PR and sponsorships and corporate comms, like, but it's the filter by which you make all your business decisions. So in a way, if you think of it, and I know you guys can't see me, so I'm making a lot of gestures with my hand, with my hands, but instead of seeing brand sort of on the right at the end of this journey, you're actually moving brand further back so that it's business to brand, brand to running the organization. So if you if you make that pivot within the organization, then all of a sudden that CMO, one has to start to work differently with all these different groups. And then it, they, they have a different responsibility because in a way they end up being sort of the carrier of the business ambition versus responsible for comms. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, brands, yeah, it's not just the colors and the logo and your tone of voice. Like it is every single aspect of a business, every single aspect that customers can potentially interact with. And that even internal branding as well is incredibly important and incredibly important role for CMOs, um, which sort of leads into what I want to ask about the, the other kind of long-term projects beyond brand building that CMOs are responsible for. They're not necessarily able to achieve the stuff they're looking to do in terms of and yet yeah, internal stuff like team building, hiring and acquisition, acquisition, talent retention, learning and development for those teams as well. Like, are, there, are there any other long-term responsibilities that you can think of that CMOs are not necessarily given the space to work within to really achieve, get, get the results that they can? Yeah, let, let's talk yeah. about the one you just mentioned yeah. for a minute, because it all starts from inside. And if you yeah. have an organization that doesn't live the ethos of that brand that you're yeah. putting out, then there's a cognitive dissonance in the universe because even when you're hiring or in particular when you're hiring the people that you're going to hire of course are going to do research and read all the stuff and prep for your interview but their their perception of your organization is what they see in the out in the world 
And it may be that you're really hardcore B2B that you don't put anything out in the world. And that that is a data point as well, you know, the absence of, of understanding of who you are. But what these two have to work together to create, again, sort of that consistent ethos. And we say, you know, we do a lot of what we call CVP, which is customer value prop, and then EVP, which is employee value prop. And we see those, we always say they're they're either siblings or or first cousins, not farther than that, because they're just two sides of the same coin. You know, like what you put out into the world has to translate into what's motivating to employees. And again, that's really hard work to do because you have to connect all the dots. And again, because big organizations that have been around for 100 years, 150 years, didn't operate that way. You know, they had a vision and mission, and then they had products that they pushed out. And somewhere along the road, someone said, well, now you need a purpose. So they added that. You know, there's all these pieces of the puzzle that haven't sort of come together. So we've done work on the CDP and EVP side, where the agency becomes responsible for bringing those two together. So you'll have the CMO or the brand teams working with the HR, the talent acquisition teams, and we're sort of we're sort of in a way sort of taking them along the journey to say, here's how your external facing promise translate into an internal facing promise. So that's that has to be foundational work. And, and it's just, and, you know, it, it can be an intellectual exercise. It doesn't always have to be massive research and massive, but an intellectual exercise to make sure that those two are gelling. And that's where the CMO can be the uniter, you know, the translator in chief, we say sometimes it's like, <laughs> well, if you had that, if you were able to articulate that business ambition in a compelling and human way, you should be the translator in chief to who is your question, right? So you've got HR and talent acquisition. You've got the service innovation, product innovation teams. Like if that is the filter, then are you developing products that meet the needs of your customers, clients today, five years out? You know, if you're setting a roadmap for the brand, how is that connected to the product roadmap? And are those two coming together? You know, you're creating entire portfolios. Well, if your brand, let's say it's about simplicity and you have a portfolio of a hundred products that are impossible to navigate, that's another discrepancy. So those two have to work together. You know, experience teams sometimes are separate. You know, we see we see it both ways where it's part of the CMO's imperative or it's sort of separate. CTOs sometimes work separately. So, you know, I, I genuinely see if anything, the role of a CMO or, or, or marketing and growth officer growing to sort of be that common thread across digital experience design, product innovation, HR, talent acquisition, even finance, you know, because there's, you know, you're creating business cases for every time you're developing a new product or a new service, or when you're looking at simplifying portfolios. So it's kind of like companies work in silos or many companies, and we encourage organizations to think about triads or quads, you know, like what are these teams of, you know, marketing, service, HR, finance, or marketing, digital, you know, depending on the makeup of your organization, um, how do you work together rather than, you know, engineers are building and, you know, service designers are design, like everyone's just sort of doing a little bit in isolation. You save a lot of money too, by the way. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine so. I can imagine so. But these kinds of working relationships, these kinds of working together on these, on these kinds of projects, they require you to build up that kind of level of trust and that level of partnership with people in the C-suite as well. And to my mind, CMOs just aren't being given 
the opportunity to develop those relationships, especially in worlds where hybrid or remote working are extremely popular. Like you don't have that face-to-face in the office time to really build up the rapport with your CFO or your head of sales or all the different quads and teams that you can be thinking about in terms of how CMO interacts. So how can CMOs really maximize the time that they have in order to actually build those kinds of relationships? That's got to be a real challenge in order to get yeah, buy-in. Yeah, such a great question. I So I, I am a firm believer of using process to hack transformation Mm -hmm. because transformation takes a very long time. So you have to force it uh, to accelerate it. And the reason I'm saying that is because you can build trust the old way, which is, you know, millions of conversations and you prove yourself and you have pilot programs that then you bring and you show, Hey, look, this worked, you know, and you're creating adherence over time. Like that's the way it should be, but that also takes a lot of time. The challenge is that a lot, most of these teams have different KPIs. Mm-hmm. So if you have a sales team in this, you know, I, I worked in automotive for a long time. And when you, you know, if you've worked in automotive, you, you know, that all the car deal, you know, the car dealership level the partnerships, like any, anyone outside of headquarters, their KPIs are to sell, you know, they're just being judged by how many cars are in the lot and not even quarterly or monthly, sometimes weekly, sometimes daily. So when you come in there to talk about brand, there it's sort of this disconnected mm-hmm. conversation. So this it, it's the CEO's job to say, we have a common goal, or these are your common KPIs. Here's how they come together. And then for better or worse, a, a CMO has to prove that correlation between investment in brand and sales. It, it, now it's hard because again, Sales usually are daily, quarterly, monthly, you know, they're immediate and brands take years mm-hmm. to grow. So that's that's the part that we can't solve for. Like you can't solve for, hey, it's going to take three years for, for you to see the value of investment in brand. And then you see, then you see like you're going to have better quality leads at the top of the funnel. You know, you're going to, that trust comes with it. You don't have to, you know, sort of beg for a place at the table, especially in B2B. Like the brand is a lot of the heavy lifting but it takes time. So you have to build, you have to be intentional and build, be not self-serving, but sort of build your case of, okay, I'm going to do these three things and I'm going to prove these. And then you can pilot that. And then you can say, Hey, here's my proof of concept. Let's roll this out. And ultimately no one's going to say no to running a better business, but you have to prove it. Definitely. definitely. Let's talk about proving it then, shall we? Um, I mean, we've touched on it a few times throughout the conversation. Let, let's talk about maybe like, as a sort of like use case study of how to go about getting buy-in for a long-term brand building project. Like who do you need to start off with in terms of getting buy-in? Like who are the main stakeholders that are going to be important in this conversation? You need to have people at the BU levels or at the business unit level that believe in the power brand. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds simplistic, but if, if you have people that don't understand, they don't have to be expert, but that don't understand it and that don't believe in it, it's a real uphill battle. So that can either come at the BU level and that's ideal because those are your partners. You know, if you're a CMO, the people that are actually responsible for the actual business mm-hmm. are the people that have the budgets, you know, usually like you end up being, they end up being your client as a CMO. 
So you need to have partnerships there and that needs to feel like you both have skin in the game. If that doesn't exist, then it needs to be a CEO that believes in the power of brand. Because if you have to prove at every single turn that this is worth it, then that's that's where that burnout happens. And that's why you get your tenures of like, dude, I'm done. <laughs> like, I've, I mean, I have heard, I've literally verbatim had someone, which of course I'm not going to say who, say to me, like, I don't think I can help this organization anymore. <laughs> Wow. And it's it's heartbreaking because you you're sitting there at the agency wanting to um you know to push them forward and you can see what that what they run up against, you know. And it's and again, it's not that they're the enemy or the other person's the enemy or they're wrong or or they're right. It's that they're being measured by different things. Mm-hmm. So think of it this way: like if if your KPI was not, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously, you know, engagement clicks and people hearing your audience, but if it was whatever, I don't know, how many laughs did you get? And that's all you care about, that the only content you're going to put out there are jokes because you're being measured by laughs. And then if someone comes over and says like, listen, it's not about laughs, it's the quality of the content. It's like long-term, the laughs are short-term. You're like, well, screw that. I'm being measured by laughs. So, you know, I'm breaking it down into very simple terms, but that's, those are the conversations you have to have and you have to then almost like shake your hands and say like, okay, cool. Like, how do I help you? How do you help me in our common KPIs and how do we move this forward? Now I've seen it too, where organizations are creating teams in between. Mm. So where you have the brand team, brand and marketing team and the business units. And what happened often is, those brand teams did great strategy or even great creative or, or great experiential strategy, what, you know, whatever it is that you're working on. And then they gave it to the business units and they're like, great, I got it done. Fantastic. And then they went in, ultimately they go like, okay, great. Get this car for 10% off. You know, like they're ultimately <laughs> going to do whatever it takes to get the sale. Yeah. And they're creating teams in between that almost act as consultants, if you will, to make sure that they are helping the execute like to make sure that the execution happens the way it should be and to make sure that the strategy is being implemented in a way that it was meant to be and that the actions that came out of the strategic thinking really sort of stay true to what they were and don't sort of devolve quickly into sales tactics so that's i think that's a really great band-aid and again example of like process can hack behavior change so up until the time when you have them working um, seamlessly together. These these teams in the middle actually, I think, really help to execute. I imagine they'd be really helpful as well in terms of measuring success and uh, like looking at actual like attribution from brand building activities. Um, particularly with more and more models rising to have more effective multi-touch attribution, I think that's going to make make it a lot easier to show the benefit of brand building stuff after the fact but i still think it's going to be hard to get the buy-in to initially yeah. launch these kinds of things yeah i mean uh, it's a it's an area i'm passionate about because we we keep trying but it, it it takes big commitment so one of the things that we want to get to is can we prove or show early indicators of change so if if i let's say i'm tracking your your podcast for a year there are points where you have some peaks and valleys. 
I can learn from that at some point. Maybe I have three years of data or four years of historical data. I can now really create diagnostic models to say, well, these are early indicators. Hey, it rained today. The days, you know, when it rains, your podcast is down. You know, so you can start to correlate. And then when you start to correlate, then you can make better investment decisions. Like that's the holy grail. That's how, that's where we all want to get to. For better or worse, where we're at, it's very immediate. It's like touch point optimization, all again geared towards sales versus long-term value. And that's a really big conversation because the the argument that companies make, including myself, is stronger brands have higher market cap. You look at the stock market, you know, it's the brands that everyone admires and recognizes and loves, you know, all the, and it's always the 10 usual suspects for a reason. So we have the proof that investing in brand matters. Investing in B2B brands matters even more. You see, there's statistics from everyone, from Harvard to McKinsey, you know, to Gardner, every research ever done that says brand matters even more in B2B because it's a trust issue and it's a risk mitigation issue. And when you're, you're investing, I don't know, a million dollars with IBM, well, that's, you know, the higher, you know, higher risk than buying a toothpaste for $3. So you have to consider, you know, the, the, that trust really, you know, so it matters even more. So the, the, the proof is there. Somehow there's still, again, that conversation because I think it's breaking all behavior. You know, it's how, how a lot of companies have worked in the past. You know, big companies just have a lot of products or a lot of complexity. Sometimes it's impossible or it feels impossible to pull it into one single idea. Um, but it, it's just hard work, like with definitely. anything. Definitely, definitely. If anything, I almost think like sort of the... the the rise of digital marketing and the digital revolution is almost hurt. I mean, obviously there's been a lot of benefits to the marketing industry for that. There's a lot of capabilities that we have now, but the idea that suddenly, oh, we can measure everything kind of put some, I'm not going to say restraints on CMOs, but it certainly meant that it made it a lot more difficult to get buy-in on activities that we know work, but until potentially very recently with the rise of AI driven technologies and multi-attribution models and all that stuff. It wasn't really possible to show the attribution for, particularly in sort of like the B2B space where you have these really long buying cycles. Like if your CRM or your analytics me um, measure is only tracking from sort of like the most recent touch point to the conversion, then you're missing out on all that brand building that technology, all that brand building that led to someone making that sale at that point, um, I saw a meme, a cartoon, I don't know what you, what, what you want to call it on LinkedIn recently. And it was this person, I know it's mainly like a B2C example, but I think it's still relevant B2B. Like this person saw a billboard, they saw an advert, they saw something in a magazine. Uh, and then finally they were on the phone, they were browsing on the phone, they saw the shoes that they liked, and thought, oh, we'll buy those shoes. And it cuts to a boardroom and everyone's looking at their analytics model and they said, oh, that purchase came from mobile. We're just going to invest more money in mobile. So I think that's, yeah, the digital idea of measuring everything. We need to get to the point where we can measure everything appropriately and effectively, I think. And that's going but to be that, a big That would change. mean, Will, and I have a little bit of beef with that because you're a thousand percent right. That's exactly, mm -hmm. exactly how people think. And I've heard 
someone the other day said to me, it's like, you can't measure, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, how do you measure? And I understand where it's coming from, right? But it, how, how do you measure the emotional mm-hmm. impact of something? You know, how, how would you measure if, you know, if you and I get along or not, or if we have rapport or not? I'm going to have to post-rationalize it in a survey, you know, like I may not even know that I like you or not, you know, until maybe you ask me, then when you ask me, I'm going to rationalize. Like there's just such an obsession for sure because you need to scale. So again, I understand it's my job to think of these systems and, and to scale them, but it's very difficult to do that. And the the best way that we can sort of push the and, and emotional, I'm doing air quotes for those listening and not seeing me is it it just means that it's not hard values. Like meaning you're not mm-hmm. just selling functional things that are tangible. You're not saying my features are better. You're not saying, I don't know, I sell steel and my steel is more resilient than yours by 20%. Like it's not a hard sell. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, Hey, I'm selling trust or I'm selling confidence or empowerment or achievement or, you know, like sort of the, that higher order, Maslow. So how do you measure that? That's always going to be a big obstacle, isn't it? And I mean, it, it gets back to that probably as old as marketing has been around that debate about whether it's a science or an art at the end of the day, like how do you measure the worth of the Mona Lisa smile, for example, how do you measure the worth of an emotional piece of advertising or emotional piece of branding? And at the end of the day, there's some people who just aren't going to be convinced by those kinds of that kind of motivation behind putting out certain activations. Like at the end of the day, a CFO, I'm not going to besmirch all CFOs and say they're like soulless robots and stuff, but CFOs at the end of the day, they want to look at the bottom line and selling smiles, selling laughs, selling tears isn't necessarily going to move the bottom line for them. So they need some kind of measurement. They need some kind of data to back it up. Of course, us marketers, us fun emotional empathetic people we can know that empathy works we can know that emotion works but at the end of the day we need to sell it to our audience um internally we need to sell it to people who aren't necessarily coming from that standpoint as you said like some people just aren't going to believe in the power of brand some people just aren't going to believe in the power of emotion so we need some data to back that up yeah i mean i think and, that, and that's right i think the the not easy but the linear path to get to that is and i was just revisiting the old Steve Jobs keynote when they mm-hmm. when he launched Think Different. Um, and he was saying, you know, the stuff we all know, like a brand is a set of values and, you know, we're not going to win by saying we make better boxes. You know, it's just, you're not going to win by saying your computer's better than the other one. Like it's, there's just, it's just not how you're going to win. It's a set of values. So that's the best way that I have to sort of force the conversation with clients who are maybe more on the functional side it's like that's fine and it doesn't mean you're not going to say you're 20 percent better than x but you you have to think about adherence like stickiness doesn't come from the claim a sale b2b side for example like is it necessarily just going to come from and a lot of it for sure at the bottom of the funnel but that top of the funnel conversation consideration all that stuff like that's not going to come from like our, I don't know, financial analysis software is 10 times faster than the other. Like we don't, human beings don't think that way. You know, we understand information and stories. That's how we comprehend information. So values are a story. Like what is the story? What do you stand for that people want to 
be attached to. Like we work with uh, a lot of tech and you always hear like, oh, you know, the, the Googles and, the, you know, they get all this credit and it's true, but that's because they stand for something. And whether they have the best product or not in any given, you know, sort of territory, I'm sure some people will say yes and some people will say absolutely not. But they win on brand, you know, they win on, hey, they stand for access and simplicity, access for all. And there's something compelling about that the people gravitate toward B2B and B2C. So, you know, it's there's so many examples out there of how do you translate that? And you're right. Well, like, I mean, correlation and attribution is a B. You know, like it's just really difficult to get to it because of journeys not being linear. But if you can trans, if you can break it down and say, "Great, here's your business ambition. Okay, what do we stand for? Okay, these are your values. Okay, those values are what you think is like you stand for your ethos. That's what we call brand. Okay, well, how do you turn that into? It doesn't always have to be fluffy, but how do you turn that into an idea that's compelling and that people want to be connected to or connected with? Because we're not that rational, you know. There's I don't know if you follow Dan Ariely and or or behavioral scientists, but you know, he has this whole book of irrational, irrational, or irrational behavior. And it's, we are ultimately sort of irrational, you know, in, in a lot of the decisions we make and that a lot of it is driven by emotion. And I know it's not the, you know, the in thing to talk about these days, but in a world where we're bombarded by so much, a moment where you connect is 10 times more important today than it was 10 years ago. Definitely, definitely. And I think, yeah, and it's the case in B2B as much in B2C these days as well. Like I would definitely say I have an emotional connection with some of the B2B tools that I use in my work life. A lot of that is because I use them in my home life as well. I think that is part mm-hmm. of it, that blurring between work and home life. There isn't so much of that separation between church and state anymore. So like Zoom, for example, we're talking on Zoom right now, Ari. Zoom kept me connected with people during the pandemic, during lockdown. It allows me to talk to my mum regularly, even though we live in completely different cities on different sides of the country. So I could see myself using Zoom throughout my work life because it's, I had that home life connection and also it's convenient as well. Why shouldn't I use the same tools that I use at work as I use at home? It just makes sense. So I do have this emotional connection with B2B stuff and I could see that continuing as more and more like the way we work the way our home and work lives blur together that emotional connection with the brands that you work with is going to be incredibly important um and yeah ways to capitalize on that is going to be the way forward well at least from my perspective i'm sure there's other people out there lots of people who are very heavily data driven are thinking no well that's wrong but for me i think emotional branding emotional connections between you and your audience is going to be even more important moving forward particularly in a world where We've got AI pumping out loads of stuff all the time. And it's going to be the whole idea of like search marketing is going to be changing as well. Like, how do you cut through all that noise? How do you actually make sure that people are coming back to you each time? It's that emotional connection at the end of the day. Yeah. And and you're saying something really interesting. You're making me actually think of it differently, which is great. So you're, while Zoom doesn't hit you with, hey, connect with family and friends, you know, like they don't, that's not their play their play is fully functional you're assigning new value to that because of what it enables and you're assigning emotional value in the case of what you you know of the story of like Mm -hmm. oh it's the it enables me to connect with family friends at whatever you know i'm sure you can double click on that 
So the work that we have to do as brand people is to understand the possibility of that assignment of value and then say, okay, great. So I think ultimately, yeah, Zoom will connect. Connect will lead to seeing friends, seeing friends of means that drives happiness. Cool. How, how do we instill some of that mm-hmm. in into the conversation, the experience, the relationship? And sometimes the answer is like, you don't need to, or you shouldn't, or, you know, I'm not advocating for every brand to have an emotional side, but you have to understand the human value. And that is sort of, I think, the, the driving force for everything I do and have always thought about this business is really digging deep to understand what's the value you're bringing or creating. And is there a bit of joy in that? And, and by joy, I don't mean like, Oh, it's fun. And like at all, I mean, joy is an emotion, you know, Mm -hmm. joy is, Hey, you open zoom and there's, there's, when you log off, there's a, there's a, a something, you know, a feeling an emotion and by joy, I just honestly, what that means for me is just a positive emotion versus a you know versus a negative yeah. one because you don't want to re-engage with a company that doesn't feel right. We you know a client doesn't want to hire us if there's no if there's not an L, a human element of connection. So so it's interesting to think of assignment of value not from us the brand people or the CMO, you know, the client, mm-hmm. but at a minimum understanding how you as the end user will assign value and then think of, okay, can I, can I use that in a good way? I mean, I, I will, I will say, Ari, I don't know if it's the case in the U S but in the UK, Zoom did run a lot of ads during the, during lockdown aimed at beat at consumer audiences about being a way to stay connected and stuff. Mm. Um, so there is that kind of perception still floating around there. Yeah. But- yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's the same for quite a few. Zoom is just an example I was using because it's sitting right in front of me. But there are quite a few other tools as well that I think I have an emotional connection with and that I would probably use for the rest of my career if I have a choice. And there are certain tools where I don't have that connection with. I'm not going to name names because my boss might be listening to this and I don't want them to know which parts of the tech stack I can't stand. But yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You, you do build this connection with B2B brands as a user that I think will continue and carry on when you get to the position where you are, um, where you are a decision maker and the types of tools that you want people to use. Cause you want the people working under you to have access to the same or even better opportunities than what you've had previously in terms of the, the tools they have access to. Um, and I think that's a, that's another long-term project that CMOs don't necessarily have the time to work on is the kinds of tools they're equipping their teams with the kinds of, tech stacks are building like a tech stack you don't just build that overnight tech stack gets built in iterations it gets added to it gets expanded sometimes it gets reduced as well and if a cmo doesn't have the opportunity to really develop that it's going to really hamper their ability to well the team's ability to do stuff as well because cmo might come in and decide oh no we want to use different tools because i have that emotional connection with this brand so yeah they it all yeah it all fits together a little bit i think in terms of this yeah planning I mean, I think it's interesting that you're bringing up things like tech stacks because it, I mean, it made me think about like, again, if, if you're, you're beacons of the brand, you know, the CMO sort of holds obviously that that in their power. And let's say you are in an organization that believes that brand is a business asset. So it's just the articulation of where you want to go. Then you really have to think about, okay, what are the foundational elements, steps, whether that's tech engagement strategies experience whatever whatever it is like what are the foundational 
things you need to build to get to the brand where the brand wants to go? And then what are the transformational things you need to do to get to where the brand needs to go? And I say that because again, sometimes you need to bring in a, a tool or a service or a product or whatever that's going to help think differently. You know, like, okay, let's say you want to drive more of a culture of innovation and you want to, you know, create more brainstorming. Okay, fine. Then I'm going to go and use whatever, you know, whatever your favorite brainstorming online tool is of, you know, do you have to force it out? So like that's, that's in a way a brand decision. Like it's, Mm -hmm. okay, how do I drive a culture of innovation? Because the brand stands for innovation. So that means internally we have to innovate. Great. That's a conversation. That's when you can influence that. That's a transformative exercise or tool or service versus foundational. It's like, so the foundational stuff is like that things that we do to work better, to optimize for efficiency. Like, I don't know that the CMO needs to be involved in that. Uh, you know, it, uh, I I guess if it helps, back to the question of like the brand, like if it helps you deliver on that brand promise, yes, mm-hmm. I guess is the short answer. If it doesn't, uh, then no, because it, it, it'll become a question of prioritization. You know, CMO has a lot on their plate. So it's not that they can't have, that they wouldn't be a valuable thinker or you know opinion in whatever conversation you're having the question is like is that a priority and then what if the cmo's perceived priority doesn't align with what the business thinks their priority should be like that's when this disconnect happens like what if the cmo's priority is on they'll get these tired. different stages yeah. <laughs> i yeah. mean i've seen it i saw i mean i'm not going to honestly name names but i Maybe a couple years ago, there was this really famous person that was named CMO. I think she was maybe chief brand, brand and marketing. And the background and the strategy, it was just completely off to what the company actually needed. It was a company going through a lot of bad press. And it was honestly in crisis management mode. Um and you could see that where they were taking the brand was almost it was almost like disassociated from mm-hmm. where the company was at in sort of perceptually and what, what this brand needed to do, a big global brand. So you can't, you know, you can't just that's a problem sometimes too with like rock star CMOs that are like just more about their brand. And we've seen that as well. So I think it's you need a, a really thoughtful, data-centric, human-obsessed CMO that understands business really well. Definitely. And that can then work with all the pieces because it's going to change depending on the size of the organization, the challenges they have. I think part of that handshake in the early days of, okay, finance person, experienced person, product person, and you know, like, of okay, here's here are the three fires, and then here's the things we're going to start to transform over time. Great, let's agree on how we're going to work through that. Then you tackle the next layer and the next layer. Definitely, definitely. Um, do you think it's a case that one of the reasons for this the short tenure and the reason that many CMOs aren't able to execute these long term plans and stuff isn't necessary because that. It isn't necessarily because they're not given enough time. It's because they're only being brought in to deal with these specific scenarios that are in front of them at the time. So as you were saying, like the crisis management situation, the the example you gave, 
they clearly wanted a CMO to come in who was an expert at dealing with that, whereas they hired someone who was clearly a very well-qualified CMO, but they weren't mm. necessarily the expert that they needed at the time. And maybe that's the case yeah. that's happening, that companies are growing and they reach a point where they outgrow the needs of the CMO at the time. Do you think that's maybe the case that it's maybe... maybe the I think it's a really hard on, job, yeah, honestly. Yeah, I really do, because... I mean, I have so much empathy because you have so much responsibility, yet I think the point you're making is you're not always able to impact the business in any real way. So when the brand, let's say it's not growing or your whatever, whatever brand, either brand health or if you're measuring sale, whatever, however, you know, every company does it differently. Then they, you know, you're the scapegoat because again, you're a cost center or you're seen as a cost center. And very often, again, like when companies don't perform, where do they cut? Where are the first cuts? Marketing, because it's a cost center. You're not going to invest in brand. Why am I going to invest in brand? It's not working. So it's a vicious cycle. And that's why I was saying you need a CEO that understands the value of brand over time and or these business unit heads that value brand and that can create a partnership with the CMO. Otherwise, you come in, you have these big dreams, you know, you want to transform the business and you're like, oh, wait, I can't impact the innovation pipeline. OK, well, then what, I can't promise that if I'm not delivering it at a product level, but you don't have a say at the product level sometimes. You know, so that it's the correlation. A brand is in this independent thing that CMOs, CMOs don't own the brand. Mm-hmm. Even though that's what we have said, like they don't. The brand's mm-hmm. the business, the business is the brand. No, they're, they're caretakers for the brand. Like the brand. Thank you. That's a, 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 brand, way to put it. a brand should be able to survive once that CMO is not in that position anymore. Like a good CMO creates a brand that has legs and will go on without them. Like Coca Cola has had many, many different marketing leads and heads of global marketing and eventually CMOs and stuff like that. But the Coca Cola brand goes on without them. And a good CMO creates a brand that lasts and continues. Yeah, I mean, I I have seen very good CMOs and not so good ones. I mean, the better ones change organizations and convince their CEOs to move the business in this direction or that, or, you know, they will use the brand and then test 18 different ways in and then say, these are the three features. Let's now go invest, you know, like those are the best partnerships. And that's, I think, when, when it's sort of these, this beautiful kind of marriage of the CEO and the CMO of like being able to articulate it, but also to push because the CMO brings the, the customer or the, your, your audience or whatever, B2B, B2C, doesn't matter. You're bringing, you should be bringing that perspective. And then of course the execution, you know, what works and how do you get to them and all that stuff. The CEO is normally thinking obviously of the business and growing capabilities, expansion, growth strategy, all that stuff. You know, complexity of the business, finances, you know, P&Ls. So they ha- it's a dance. You know, they have to influence each other. Those are the best partnerships. For sure. For sure. And it, yeah, I think partnership is the perfect term for it as well, because, yeah, it's two people supporting each other to succeed at the end of the day. A CEO should be able to trust and rely on their CMO, and the CMO should be able to have the support they need from their CEO as well. So, yeah, I think partnership is a great way of putting it. Um, Ari, I've realized we've covered so much here. Let's see if we can tie stuff together, maybe with sort of like three golden rules that CMOs should be keeping in mind when it comes to trying to get by and trying to execute long-term plans. 
now maybe let's let's have a quick chat about how you think think things might change in the future like obviously the business landscape's changing the types of people who are in these kinds of positions are changing so is it always going to be like this or are we going to see a bit of a change in the future but let's let's focus on those three golden rules for now three rules so i think the first is the one i just made which is partnership you can't go it alone simple as that and that partnership you have to figure your way which are the strategic partnerships if it's you the ceo if it's you business units if it's you whatever you know whatever those are if you want to impact the organization and create change you have to find a way to do it holistically and you have to find those partnerships the second thing i will say is be adamant rigorous and intentional about creating value for the brand and that could be emotional by the way it doesn't have to be only functional but creating value and i'm not stopping there value for all for multiple stakeholders and what that means is if you're recommending doing x y and z for the brand for a product forget the brand for a product let's say you're in b2b it's a service you know are you thinking about is that creating financial value are you thinking about is it creating employee value are you thinking is it creating of course user value because when you have an idea that can create multiple what we call multiple stakeholder value then that idea is you know bulletproof because you're driving growth um, at, at multiple levels um and i guess the third which is more my motto but i would love cmos to always have this is what i call rigorous imagination and that to me means exactly what those two words are like never stop never stop learning never stop understanding the business never stop you know getting smart use data for everything you can but you have to have an imagination and you have to have the ability to see things others don't because you're still the caretaker of an idea mm-hmm. and that's what a brand ultimately is a group of things that add up to an idea. So if you're not thinking about, or if you don't have imagination, if you don't have an ability to, you know, poke a hole in the competitors, so they have to reposition themselves. So if you don't have the ability to honestly see the future in three years, you know, so that you can lay that ground, if you don't have the ability to figure out how to solve things internally, then just being great, a great marketer is just not enough, at least in big organizations and even in small because in small you have to you have other problems you have to scale you have to create discipline usually a lot of smaller companies haven't invested in the structure like it's other challenges but rigorous imagination and its attention in those two words but it's kind of how i see our jobs in solving these big problems yeah it's a, it's a great way of putting it and, and great um rules altogether there Ari so yeah just to wrap things up let's let's talk a little bit about the future because obviously the types of people who are in CEO roles are changing we're getting a lot more diversity not just in terms of people's backgrounds but also in terms of people's professional backgrounds as well um like we actually just published a podcast today that was all about marketers reaching the the CEO level we're seeing a few more and more marketing background CEOs, even in like major companies. Is that going to cause a big sea change? Are marketers going to suddenly have all this freedom to work with, all these opportunities to dive into all these big uh, all these big projects? Yeah. Or like, how do you think things are going to go in the future? If they yeah, I think there are a handful of examples. So I don't see a sea like you know a sea of change. It's been 
honestly a decade to get to exactly the place that you've talked about. You know, I remember when we started tracking agency people that went to CMO roles and that was revolutionary because usually CMO roles were like business school. It was the exact same profile. And all of a sudden you had, wait, you worked at LibreNet and now you're the CMO of Target? (laughs) What? How did that happen? That's insane. You know, so that was, it's just been years and years in the making of like that evolution from that again, like, oh, you know, that belief of like, if you're creative or if, if you have an imagination, you can't be a good business person. So I don't know. I don't know that it's, I mean, maybe it's been forced now because of AI and because we all have to have this rigorous imagination because we Mm -hmm. do all have to think a lot quicker and learn constantly. Like we're telling everyone at BSA, like, the best path to AI is every day on it, you know, learn, learn how to write prompts, learn what we can use it for, learn if we develop smaller little services, like we're going to have to, everyone's going to have to really have this philosophy of the typical innovation philosophy, which is iterate and fail early, you know, learn, 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 iterate, fail early, and then try the Mm -hmm. next new thing. So I think it's less of a kind of, role meaning like the CMO moving to a CEO and it's and it's more of a the kind of mindset that's maybe required to manage a business and that elasticity of thinking is a a bit of a new thing for older sort of more traditional and I don't mean old by age I mean just traditional CEOs that were very linear in their thinking Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I find myself having to think of things differently all the time. And I, I, am na- I, I naturally think in not linear ways, but in sort of making random connections with random things. But that's not the traditional, you know, C-suite at a company kind of way of thinking. That's, and they have to change. Everyone's going to have to change. There's no other way. For sure, for sure. We are going into big changes right now, but we're still in very early days of those changes as well. So it'll be interesting to see how things develop, both in terms of like the leadership of companies and also how these technologies develop as well in terms of the roles that emerge out of that. So it'll be interesting to explore that in the future. Thank you very much, Ari, for this conversation. It's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. I think we've covered so much as well. I think there's loads of valuable stuff there. So thank you very much for your time today, Ari. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. And I hope I didn't bore people to death with how obsessed I get about the topic. But thank you for giving me the time. Well, I think a lot of our audience are just as obsessed with the topic of brand and the topic of long-term plans for CMOs as you are, Ari. So I'm sure they've very much enjoyed your insights today. And I'd like to thank our audience as well for listening. Uh, we'll be back soon with some more CMO combos. Like what you heard from this CMO combo? Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating so the whole world knows how great it was.